0: We're in, we Good evening and welcome to the Season 3 finale of Monsters Among Us. I'm your guide, Derek Hayes. Here it is folks, the Season 3 finale. It's hard to believe that we've already made it to this point. It seems like just yesterday that I sat down in front of the mic for the very first time. Nervous, unsure, and most of all, clueless. A year and a half and some 60 plus episodes later, here we are. Now like other season finales in the past, this one too is a bit special. You see, tonight you will not only be hearing from me, your faithful guide, but you'll also be hearing from several other influential hosts from across the paranormal podcast realm. So kick up your feet, turn down the lights, pour yourself a drink, and turn up that volume because we're about to open this thing up. that was a little ditty by West Virginia cryptid rocker and friend of the show, Captain Catfish, titled Crying Saucer, Hovering Heart. If you like what you hear, search for Captain Catfish on Bandcamp, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play to explore the entire catalog. And that's Catfish, C-A-T-F-E-E-S-H. As I stated in the opening, tonight we're going to do something a little bit different. Up until now, you've only heard my voice analyzing and breaking down calls, but tonight, for this very special episode, I thought it would be fun to bring on a few other seasoned veterans and get their expert opinions on a handful of submitted stories. So, let's get after it. Our first guest of the evening is one of the hosts of Secret Transmission podcast. For those unfamiliar, Secret Transmission takes a more laid-back and comical approach to subjects including, but not limited to, unexplained phenomenon and conspiracy theory. Here to help us with our first call of the evening, Mr. Toby Schofield. Hey, Toby. Thanks for being part of uh, the special edition of Monsters Among Us. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you for having
0: me on. So, Toby, I'm asking everybody that I'm interviewing today for this episode what got you into the paranormal? Was there a certain event or, or uh, you know, a book or, or a movie that launched you into this strange obsession?
1: Well, uh, mostly just a bunch of strange experiences I had when I was younger. Uh, my mom had st- uh, stories that I've heard from my family with odd paranormal-type experiences, uh, being addicted to the History Channel when I was younger, didn't didn't help anything watching all the the ghost adventure kind of shows and uh, just all that kind of stuff got me into it and here I am
0: doing a sh- podcast about it now it's pretty much the same way I got into it you know I, I grew up in the eighties and unsolved mysteries came around and Harry and the Hendersons and I think my biggest influence was probably the Time Life books uh, which I've mentioned on the show previously that was pretty much obsessed with those things so you know, there was a lot of information around that time that I think it launched a lot of people into this this uh, subject matter. Right. So, Toby, what do you say we get into our first call for the evening? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Our first call of the evening comes to us not too far from my home. The stretch of road mentioned is one I've traveled many times, which makes this call even more interesting to me. This is Coda's call from California.
2: Hi there.
0: My name is Coda.
3: And I have quite a bit of stories, but I'll just start with one. This has been going on and off throughout the majority of my life. I'm 35 years old, live in California, and the first one that I want to share is one that actually happened with other people. My wife, my son, and my sister-in-law were all in the car. We were going down to Ventura from Santa Maria, California, to meet my kid's mom, who lives in Long Beach halfway, so we can basically drop him off and he can go back home. Normal, normal drive, nothing special, basically an hour and a half there, an hour and a half back, done it a million times. So This was probably about four or five years ago, and it was on the 101. We were driving and passing Buellton, basically, God, I don't want to say like maybe right near Lompoc, but I remember specifically that the the sign said that Vandenberg Air Force Base was pretty much, take this exit, go a couple miles, and you're basically gonna be there. Um, That is one of the last signs that I remember when it actually happened. Now, it that I'm referring to is this light that just kind of appeared in the sky. I wasn't the first person to notice it. My wife was, and then my son was. It was on top of our car following us, and it was really strange. Now, I've seen UFOs here and there, like everybody else does, but from just never right above your car. That was a little concerning to me because at first I thought it was, oh, just a drone or a toy, but this thing was a lot bigger than a drone, um, but no bigger than a car itself. Now, rather than just kind of wondering what it was and looking up every so often, I said, no, I'm going to pull over because I want to see what is following us and what's on top of the car, what they're seeing. It must have been really strange because three other cars pulled over on the 101, um, pretty much out in the middle of nowhere, like between Buellton and Santa Barbara, there's not a whole lot there. And um, it's right around where we pulled over and we saw it. Now the other cars that pulled over People got out of their cars, I got out of my car, they were kind of looking at it. Nobody yelled at us or tried to get our attention or anything. Maybe they were and we couldn't hear them because the thing was still right above us when I got out. It was so strange. I had never seen a light like that. We've all seen bright lights. You know, turn the light on in the middle of the night, it's like, you know, your eyes are trying to adjust to it and they kind of freak out and it's a huge glare. And it was bright, it really was, but... It was hard to explain the brightness. It didn't really hurt my eyes, or I was able to stare at it, if that makes sense, without having to adjust to it or anything. The other really weird thing that I noticed was that the light was around me and the car, but... Normally, light you can see kind of expand outside of its perimeter and, you know, light up other little areas, but it looked almost as if that light was isolated just on us, and nothing outside of it was actually being lit up. Uh, My son ended up drawing a picture of it, which looked like a diamond-shaped with panels underneath, and when I saw it, there was a vague outline of some kind of odd shape that I'd never heard of. Or, excuse me, never seen before. This thing emitted no sound. It emitted no wind. I didn't hear anything, see anything, didn't feel anything either. It was just like something just put itself on mute and was just right on top of us. After being in awe for a few moments, I decided to get my phone from the car. So I go back in to grab it. My, my wife, my son, and my sister-in-law still outside staring at this thing. And when I come back out, it was gone at that point. I looked around for a little bit didn't see anything. And that was it. Like two weeks later, I was driving to Santa Barbara because I actually worked there for a software company and commuted. Um, And it was a graveyard shift job. So I was working 10 to 7am. And I saw it again. But this time it wasn't above my car. It was on top of a hill. And I've seen this hill a million times driving down that 101. And there's nothing there. No power lines, nothing. No bushes, just, just a hill. But it's uh, it's a ways out where I couldn't just pull over and run to it and just kind of, you know, take a look again. But I stared at it for a while, and I saw that it was actually that thing again, that same shape. Even though it was from a distance, I could still kind of tell. It looked just looked familiar. And after staring at it for a few moments while driving, probably not the safest thing, but again, it was kind of one of those things where I was just like, wow and this time I actually saw it turn its lights off. It's just off, but it didn't disappear. The sky was kind of a moonlit night, so I could see that it was still just idling right above that hill. It just turned its lights off. It was just this black thing right above. So when I got home the next morning, after my shift is over, because I didn't tell anybody, I only told maybe like a few people and everybody thinks I'm nuts, um, I decided to go onto a website to report it, that I saw the UFO here, and never heard anything from anybody. I was expecting a couple of different scenarios to happen, but nothing actually did. Um, now here's my theory, because I do believe in UFOs and aliens and whatnot. However, this was right next to Vandenberg, and it's not entirely out of the question that they're just testing something, and I saw it a couple different times. So, that's entirely possible, and ever since then, um, I've seen different things here and there. <sighs> out. It's really hard to explain, but uh, not the same, definitely not the same type of UFO. Uh, maybe some of the same things that other people saw in the area. I don't really know a lot of people in the area that are really into UFOs, uh, but there have been a couple of sightings around here for, you know, lights near the beach and Kismo and Shell Beach, um, things like that that I've actually seen here and there. and Never actually taken any pictures, but that one experience that I had on the freeway was probably the most memorable out of all of them. Uh, but anyway, that's uh, that's my story. Uh, I saw UFO on the freeway and was afraid that after I reported it, people were going to show up on my doorstep, which uh, never actually happened. So uh, for all I know, they probably just thought some crazy guy ranting about things that he saw in the sky again. But thanks for listening. Um, I do have plenty of other stories, ghost stories, really intense, scary ones, but um, maybe I'll just call back and give another one here in a little bit.
0: Thanks. Thank you, Coda, for taking the time to share your encounter. So Toby, as my guest, would you like to start off with this one?
1: Yeah. First off, I'd, I'd like to say that I like that he's got a rational mind about it right there at the end, talking about the Air Force Base. And I, I always think it's very important for anyone that, that has a odd sighting, you want to be rational about your sightings. And I always think it's really important to uh, report them, like, like he said he did, just in case someone happens to see it and, you know, they can have a report that on this same day we both saw this crazy thing in the sky. You know, if he wasn't beside a, a, some type of Air Force Base, you know, it would make it more significant. But I I like that he's being very rational about what he saw.
0: That's true. I mean, for most people, I think MUFON is the destination for most of these reports. But, you know, your local news and, and newspaper also, I think, accept a lot of these reports. On top of 911 calls, I mean, you can go to YouTube right now and, and listen to dozens of 911 calls regarding, uh, you know, UFO sightings and, and stuff of that nature. But you're 100% right. It's it's really important to document these, not only for uh, UFO research going forward, but also for your own sanity. When you're trying to tell somebody, you know, two years later, you know, oh, I saw that same thing this guy's talking about. But you really have no proof of that. Right. You have no way of backing up the, your claim that you saw this. But if you did report it, you can go to MUFON, you can go to the website, and bring up your file. Like, look, there's here's where I reported it on such and such date. This is what happened. It's just kind of, a, I guess, a validation for the witness, uh, for their own sense of mind.
1: Right. And, you know, it's it's also very... Now, he said he had driven this road plenty of times, but it's also very important to know everything, everything that's in the surrounding area because you can drive up and down a road a hundred times and be like... And then all of a sudden you'll notice, oh, they knocked over this gas station. It's not there anymore, you know. You kind of get into a uh, a zone where you don't pay attention to every bit of your surroundings. And something new, a new store may pop up or, you know, something like that happens. I don't know. I I wonder what else was in the area. But he did have uh, the weird light that just stayed over his car. That's really he, weird.
0: He did, yeah. And, you know, like I said in the opening, I've traveled this stretch of road a lot uh, over the years. and. There are a lot of offshore oil rigs uh, just, just off the, the coast there. And I know some of them pump gas or fumes or something um, to the other side of the freeway. And they burn off in like a 10-foot, 15-foot flame that's up on the hillside above the freeway. So if you're driving there, you know, even during the day, you could see it clear as day. But if you're driving there at night, it kind of looks like a big orange thing just floating up there and especially at night when you can't see that the mountains are there it's you know everything's dark and all you see is this big orange i guess it's a flame but it you know at a distance it looks like an orb or like a strange shaped craft just floating there that definitely ties in with his second experience that that he reported having
1: right and see i i work in the oil field and uh usually those are we call well (laughs) the oil field has a different name for everything but we usually call them flare stacks and those are usually just to burn off uh, excess gas or H2S, uh, just, you know, whatever's extra. And they can, they can turn them off or, you know, turn them on at any given second. So for a light to be there and then to be gone, that's, I mean, it's not like it's going to peter out real slow. Like, it, when they shut the gas off, it's going to burn out the last bit of fumes and be gone.
0: So they so if one of these is burning it doesn't always burn cuz I can think of other places in the country I've been where every time I go there I see a flame from a certain pipe like it's always always burning but in this instance you're you're saying that sometimes it's burning sometimes it's not
1: I mean they don't necessarily have to burn it off uh d- different areas I'm I'm a, of course in the Texas area and uh most of the time it was just we would burn off gas temporarily uh, until maybe a pipeline got ready for us to send the gas through it. So, I mean, like I said, it, at any given second, we could turn it off from going to the flare stack to going down the pipeline, and you it would just turn off the light like you flipped the switch. And those suckers, they get super bright. You can see
0: them from miles and miles away sometimes. So it's possible that you know there was one of these pilot lights or whatever you called them that, is hardly ever used, and just this one instance it was turned on, and he happened to see it. That could account for uh, at least his second encounter, where he said he saw it up on the hill yeah. or up above the hill. I mean, it's it's one theory, anyways. If if uh... you got to have theories, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, going back to his first experience, then he did mention that he was uh, in, pro- in close proximity of Vandenberg Air Force Base which I don't know if you're familiar, but there are multiple reports from high-ranking officials that missiles launched from Vandenberg, which I think it's known for missile launching. Uh, missiles launched from there were intercepted or otherwise messed with by uh, UFOs, um, unidentified objects that they've had on camera you know, disabling or, or route, rerouting these these missiles. So there's definitely some background there for this type of behavior. Now, whether it was a missile or something like that that he saw, or, you know, possibly whatever these unidentified crafts are that are uh, intercepting these missiles, maybe it was something along either line there. Right. Yeah. I'm going to link uh, in the show notes to a couple videos of people discussing, uh, you know, exactly what happened with these interferences, uh, the missile interferences. So if if you're interested in that, head over to the website and click on the show notes tab and... You know, I'll have a couple of videos linked in there. Check those out. There's, one of them's hosted by Larry King, so there's some clout to them. You know, the weird thing about this call, Toby, is that a couple days later I received another call that was from the same area that reported something very similar. Do you have a few minutes that we can play that call? Of course. The following is Joe's call, also from California.
2: Hey, Derek. This is Joe from California and I uh, got a little story for you. Uh, I didn't I've been listening to all of your old shows and I didn't think I had any stories but um, I guess I've got some repressed memories because uh, I keep thinking of things. Anyway, I don't know if you would uh, consider this a UFO or an orb, but this is what I saw so I was late one night maybe like 11 o'clock. And I was in my garage, which is detached from the house, just doing whatever out there. And I uh, came outside, and I had to take a pee. And I had a spot there where I usually took a pee. And I, uh, if you gotta, you know, as one will do when they're outside peeing, they'll look up at the stars. And I was looking up at the sky. And our whole yard is uh, bare of trees. Backyard of our house but we have large oaks going around the whole perimeter. So if you can imagine the skyline, you know, there's the stars and then you can see the shadow, the dark shadows of the trees. And, uh, in between two of the trees, there was a orange light in the sky. And, uh, I don't know how far away it was or how close it was, but it was a lot bigger than any star or anything else. Uh, Don't really have a good reference for what size it was. The best I can explain it is if you hold your arm out, you know, all the way out and look at your pinky nail. It was probably a little smaller than that, and it was moving to the left pretty slowly, and it was um, getting brighter and dimmer, like uh, almost like your like a laptop computer when it's in sleep mode, if you've ever had. You know, a computer that does that where the light on the computer will slowly get brighter and slowly get darker again. And it was moving along and I was like, Oh, what is that thing? So I ran to get my wife and uh I didn't want to take my eyes off of it. So um I opened the door and without turning my head out, I was calling my wife, I said, Laura, come here and she it was like, Yeah, what is it? And uh you know, she didn't want to get up or come, come out to the backyard. And I was like, there's something up here in the sky. I want you to see it before it's gone. And she was just like, Oh, you know, whatever. She didn't want to get up. And I said, like, come here, you know, hurry up. It's going to be gone soon. You know, it's going to go behind the tree. And, uh, finally I turned my head to, you know, ask her to come a little louder. And, uh, when I had, when I took, turned my head back, it was gone and uh you know i've never seen anything like that in the sky before and i've spent lots of time looking up at the stars and stuff but um i have no idea what it was uh I was thinking maybe you have an idea or somebody with a similar story would call in and tell their story uh, i know we're close to vandenberg air force base here uh where i live is atascadero california i looked it up online the next day. I Google searched uh, UFO sightings in Tascadero, and I didn't find anything, just uh, a story about a crazy guy talking about spy planes flying around at night in Tascadero. Anyway, uh, I love the entertainment that your show gives me. Thank you. Great job. Have a good night. Hope you enjoyed the story.
0: Thank you, Joe, for submitting that call as well. So that's pretty interesting that both just happened to be from uh, the same area near Vandenberg Air Force Base. Uh, It could explain a lot as far as the two experiences, which also seem to be somewhat similar. Um, Both descriptions, you know, not dead on, but weren't that far apart either. And, you know, Joe's being more distant, uh, I feel like it was harder for him to pull out details. So it's an interesting call, and especially the fact that they were so... Close together in both time and proximity. You know,
1: uh, Joe says that he saw an orange light. I wonder. I wonder what color the lights were on the first caller's sightings. And also, you're right about about the uh, how close they were. Too bad, because didn't in the first call he say something about uh, something actually on the ship that he he could actually make out a, a detail of. Yeah, he mentioned panels
0: um, yeah. in the bottom part of the craft as it was hovering over his car, which, you know, to me, I feel like if it's hovering over your car, it kind of takes missiles out of it. I'm not, you know, a missile expert, but I don't think, <laughs> I don't, uh, maybe they do, I don't know, but I think finding a missile that's going to hover over your car is going to be difficult, especially, you know, noiseless, doesn't emit fumes or a smell or anything like that. It doesn't sound like a missile that I've ever heard of.
1: And, you know, that takes out the the theory of uh, a helicopter, you know, because if it's noiseless, you know, helicopters are loud and
0: blow stuff around, depending on how low they are. The only thing it sounds like it could be, you know, logically, would be a drone, and I believe he he ruled that out uh, on his own um, based on the way it was moving and just how it looked. He said it didn't look like any drone he'd ever seen, so... It's an interesting story for sure, and, you know, I'd love to hear from anybody else from that area that may have experienced anything else, Uh, and I'm going to do some further research on it um, as well and maybe touch on it in a future episode, especially since it's so close. Maybe I'll make a trip up there and do a little look at myself. Right. Yeah. So, Toby, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and and, uh, discuss UFOs with me. If you want to take a quick moment and tell everybody else where they can find your show. Well, if you like conspiracies, uh, serial killers, the paranormal,
1: UFOs, anything weird, we uh, we try to dissect it and decide if it's real or not. We try to come up with all the facts and all the quote facts. And our show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and a bunch of other places and our uh, Twitter handle is at Secret and come chit chat with us because
0: I'm super active on Twitter. Definitely are. That's uh, one of the places where I found you guys. Actually, <laughs> your your show's a lot of fun. You guys take—I uh, don't want to call it a comical approach, but it kind of is a comical approach. It's it's a fun hangout with with buddies. It is how it feels to me where you're just discussing these crazy subjects. So, I highly recommend everybody go over and check it out. And if you want a quick link, uh, go to the show notes, and I'll have a link in there uh, directly to Secret Transmission, and you can check it out there. All right, Toby, I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, have a great evening, and we'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: Our next guest is the creator and host of Into the Fray Radio. I'm excited to welcome Shannon Lagro to the show. Hi, Shannon.
4: Hey there, Derek.
0: How's it going?
4: Going very well. Thanks for inviting me on.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. I had a short list of people I had to ask and you were at the top. So, Oh, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time. So let me ask you a quick question that I've asked everyone else. How did you become interested in the paranormal? Was there a certain event or something otherworldly that happened to you that, that caused you to gravitate in that direction?
4: Uh, yes, sir. Indeed, there was. I was about 12 or 13 and grew up in Vegas, but my dad would have cabins out in Utah in the forest, in the woods, and a lot of aspen trees there. So it's not like you think of Ohio, real, real brushy on the ground. Um, so nice, nice, clear ground to see uh, a good long ways. And we would ride four every single day. It was our favorite thing to do besides go fishing. And one day I'm riding the four wheeler without a helmet. Not the brightest thing to do, but <laughs> uh, it was broad daylight. I definitely wasn't asleep, whereas you s- hear a lot of shadow people encounters, but this one was very different. So, broad daylight, and I'm riding the four wheeler. And I look to my right, and there is four uh, darker than dark, black as night completely devoid of light, even sucking in the light, if you want to call it that, uh, shadow people. And they are running exactly parallel with me while I am still, you know, going extremely fast on my 4 on this very straight dirt road. And I watched them for a good five count, which is actually a good long little while if you really count it out. And, of course, I'm still driving my 4 so I had to check my path really quickly and I looked back and they were completely gone. So... The the reason not only were they head to toe black as night, but they were running as if the trees weren't there. And Utah is rife with uh, aspen trees. And there was mm-hmm. plenty of them where these guys or things were running and they were running as if they weren't there. But the, the really almost comical thing, especially at this point when I talk about the story, is that they were... They were, you know, pumping their arms. And I'm thinking, you guys don't really need to do that, do you? <laughs> I mean, why go through that act? Because obviously like you're not man, of this right? world. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, you, you're not fooling anybody. <laughs> you're not part of this world. So, yeah, anyhow, that, those five seconds changed my, my life and changed my outlook on things. And it, it started me on the path of, of finding other people with similar stories. And as you know, there are a lot of them out there.
0: There are a lot of us out there. Yeah. Now, i got to ask, this was Utah. Was this anywhere near the Skinwalker Ranch?
4: No. So this is a Cedar Mountain uh, up from Cedar City, which is only about four hours from me. And I think Skinwalker is more like eight or nine hours from me. Uh, I see. So, yeah, I I get that question a lot. It's a natural question to wonder. But, uh, yeah, nowhere near Skinwalker is still a place on the list to go. But um, but those guys, maybe they were escapees from Skinwalker Ranch. You never know.
0: It possibly, yeah. It, and when you're talking about places to investigate and places to go, I know you investigate a lot of places. Is there one in particular that, you know, uh, you fell in love with or that you had such an experience that you just have to go back? Like, basically, what's your favorite place that you've investigated?
4: Favorite place? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, it seems like such a simple question, but I don't know if it has a simple answer. I think that probably Bigfoot hunting is my favorite thing to do. If hunting is, you know, don't take that out of context, everybody. <laughs> don't don't email Derek about the hunting. Uh, not literally hunting.
0: Searching. Searching. Yeah.
4: For, so yeah. I, I would say that's my favorite thing to go do. But I, I do believe that in my heart of hearts that just the high strangeness or hauntings, things like that are more obviously personal to me. So I think that what I did recently, like going to Fox Hollow Farm, is even more in my wheelhouse than Bigfoot because I have yet to see a Bigfoot, but, you know, something like a shadow person ties much more easily into going to a place like Fox Hollow Farm or even Skinwalker Ranch where it's just kind of that amalgamation of a whole bunch of of different paranormal activity going on.
0: There's a lot of activity in a small area that makes it a lot easier to soak it all in. I think.
4: Yeah, and it might be an overload and it's kind of one of those <laughs> be careful what you wish for. But I still to this day, I'm like, I'm ready for another experience because I'm, I'm 36 now. So it's been a long time since I've I've had some weird stuff. And, and anyone that's listened to my show has heard me beat the dead horse about the things that I've experienced. But I that's the only thing I've ever seen with my own eyes was those four figures in the woods that day.
0: Uh, I'd say that's a pretty good start. Uh, it's an amazing story.
4: Yeah, yeah, it is.
0: All right, well, since this is a call-in show, let's uh, get to a call, should we? Absolutely. All right, then. The following call comes to us from a fellow investigator, ironically enough. This is Joshua's
5: call. Hey there. Just discovered your podcast. Uh, Really enjoying it quite a bit, going through the back episodes. Uh, I think it's great that you get people's stories out there. Anyway, my name is Joshua. I've been in the paranormal investigation field for 20 years, and I have a wealth of stories I could share with you. Some strange, and some that only seemed strange until they were critically examined. But let's begin at the start with the first experience I ever had that piqued my interest in weirdness and started me down this spiral. So, when I was six, we lived in a complex with five huge apartment buildings. And on a corner of the property by some railroad tracks was an old abandoned house that was used as a gang hangout and a place where people went to drink and party. Sometime that year, the owners decided to turn that area into a power substation and storage area, so security started aggressively patrolling the grounds and old house to keep the kids and vagrants away while they readied the place for construction. With everyone gone, my friends and I decided it would be fun to explore an abandoned house. So early one morning, before security got busy, we headed over there and entered the house. There was a large plywood board nailed crosswise across the bottom where the front door would have been, uh, had there been one, and we, cl- we had to climb over it to get in. Uh, that's important later. Now I recall there was me, my friends Kenny and AJ, his brother Willie, and some kid I vaguely remember as Buster who just happened to be with us that day. We split up into a few groups and started exploring the various rooms on the upper and lower floors. The old owners had left quite a bit of stuff in there and we were having fun looking through the antiques, but eventually we all met up in the living room and decided it was time to go. It was right about then that Kenny noticed that nobody had been in the basement. I wasn't nearly that brave, but Kenny and Buster opened the door and headed down while the rest of us waited. Not a minute later, we heard one of them yell, and they came pounding upstairs, vaulted over the plywood at the door, and sprinted into the parking lot. Coming up the stairs behind them was a man in filthy blue jeans with no shirt or shoes, and I vividly remember he seemed to have a rope or something tied around his arm. Naturally, the rest of us took off. AJ had to stop a second to climb over the plywood, which slowed me down and made me climb over it too instead of just leaping. Just as I got over it, Willie hit that board full tilt and knocked it off the door on top of me. Now I found myself pinned under him and a board while some lunatic was coming in fast. He scrambled up and ran after the rest, and as I turned over to climb out from under the board, I saw this dirty man almost upon me. Then he literally vanished. Slowly. And by that I mean his shape went wavy, then transparent, and then he was gone. I got to my feet and took off, first at home because I would peed myself. When I was changed, I found everyone else again and it became apparent nobody else had turned around to look, so I was the only one who had seen him disappear, and I decided to keep my mouth shut about that. At six, I had no idea what heroin was or how it was done, but a few years later when I did, the memory clicked right back in my head. Maybe that rope thing around his arm was a surgical tie. Did I see the ghost of a heroin addict? Was it a real junkie that my panic totally overplayed? If so, where did he go and how? I guess I'll never really know, but that day started off a lifelong quest to look into the weird and wonderful. Thanks for letting me share my story.
0: And thank you, Joshua, for taking the time to share. So, Shannon, what are your initial thoughts on Joshua's story?
4: So, I loved this call. From Joshua, Uh, this one really hit home with me, partially because he was around other people, right? Like, Mm -hmm. when he had his experience, and in my own experience, I was also... Now, he had people see the man, but he was the only one to see him disappear, which is probably extremely frustrating for Joshua. And I think he mentions that. Of course, he says, you know, was that a real junkie that uh, maybe my own panic overplayed, and I I didn't see... Properly, him you know exiting stage left
6: mm-hmm. but
4: initial reactions for me is i don't really know how to dispel what was going on there unless in fact he may be in his panic he looked away for a second and he didn't realize it and the guy you know he really did uh exit stage left the problem for me is that all these other kids had a, a very visceral reaction and they did see something coming up out of the basement and chasing them or something or someone, I should say, maybe not call him a thing straight away, but (laughs) having him disappear like that, uh, it very much reminds me of, of my own experience. So I know how jarring uh, that can be. So I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I know that a lot of times when, of course, there's a murder or someone loved a house or something bad happens, something can get imprinted. On a location. Uh,
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
4: but it, it does seem like this guy was interacting a little bit more than maybe what we would call a residual haunting.
0: You know, for me, the talking point here mostly is that everybody seemed to see this guy. So the, there was a, a man somehow, you know, the, whether it be a ghost or an actual junkie. There was somebody there at some point. Where it gets crazy is only Joshua saw the man disappear or fade out, as he described it. And it kind of got me to thinking that maybe, you know, he's six years old, he's terrified. Maybe he's to a point where he starts to black out even. And in that, it makes the guy look like he's fading out, disappearing or maybe it's just as simple as the junkie solves just some kid, so he just fades back into the doorway and the light just kind of absorbs him. Now that's, you know, assuming he was a real person. If you want to talk about him being, a, you know, a, something paranormal, that's an entirely different set of rules right there. And it actually reminds me of a story that my friend Damien told me. He grew up in Cleveland, and uh, this must have been, I'd say mid-90s that uh, this took place. It was uh, when the Mansfield Re- Reformatory was just closing down. Uh, I don't know the exact date on that offhand, but uh, him and his buddies decided they were going to break into the hospital wing of this building and do some urban exploring kind of thing. So they went room to room and kind of dug through whatever files were left and whatever instruments were still laying around. And at a certain point, they shined their light through uh, one of those windows that divide two rooms. It doesn't go outside. It goes to the room next door. And there was an old man and, like, a hospital gal just staring at them mm. through, through the window. And they all took off. But, of course, in their panic, they all got lost. And they couldn't find each other. They couldn't find their way out of the building. Oh, that's and terrible. One, The one guy was stuck in there for probably a half hour, 45 minutes, trying to find his way out. And I can only imagine what's going through his head, thinking, you know, there's something in here that's unnatural. And I'm stuck. Right. Joshua's story reminded me a lot of you know, of that story.
4: That's terrifying. Um, it's one thing to see something and be able to immediately get out, but to be stuck in a massive building, that probably cured them of their, their urban <laughs> hunting uh, excursions, huh?
0: That's probably their last time, I imagine.
4: I-, I will say, though, that even if this was a real man, junkie or not... It- if you're not, somewhere you're not supposed to be, and then all of a sudden there's a, a huge man chasing after you, that's terrifying enough in and of itself. So, But, you know, you did bring up an interesting point. In a panic, he's six, and I don't think a lot of six-year-olds maybe, hopefully, for the most part, have panic attacks. But for anyone that's had a panic attack, you know, your vision can actually can change and get blurry and... Uh, like you said, almost a blackout situation. So maybe, indeed, that is what happened to to young Joshua there at six years old. But so very scary. Not a fun experience for any of those kids.
0: It's yeah, definitely true. And there's another thing that, that he said that really made me think was that he saw the, I, I can't remember what he called it, but the band around his, his arm the heroin apparatus I, uh, surprising here i don't do heroin so i don't, I don't know what <laughs> yeah, it's called yeah we don't but. really
4: quite know the lingo here but yeah <laughs> but
0: he saw this and didn't know what it was and it wasn't until later in life that it dawned on him that that could have been what he saw so to me that lends a bit of credence to the story that you know there was a detail in it that took him oh let's let's say 20 years to pick up on that's that's an interesting aspect of the story
4: yeah and obviously it's very vividly stuck out in his mind too
0: Yeah, it would to me as well.
4: Yeah, I don't know, like what's worse being, you know, the one trapped underneath your friend and the the pieces of the board covering the door or the kids that initially saw him and had to run all the way up the stairs away from the guy. I don't know, it's (laughs) it's a toss up there.
0: It's like a classic ghost story. It's, you know, ghost in the basement.
4: Yeah, and actually, I dug up a couple of things that were very interesting, and of course, this story, and I don't really need to, I don't think that I need to rehash most of what people would call the classic vanishing hitchhiker stories. You know, there's been 30 different or 40 different versions. They can be on boats or after a car wreck, and you know, you're giving some wayward maiden a ride, and she's she looks like she's been in a car wreck, and she says that she has, so you give her a ride, and there's different variations but either she vanishes while the car is in motion and the guy looks back and oh girl's gone or she says thank you thank you for the ride gets out and is vanishing while she's walking away from the car the, it reminded me of that right if you're looking up vanishing specters mm-hmm. or people but if if i may really quickly here this is a uh, ghosts of flight 401 and i remember hearing about this but at This is the first time that I actually got to dig into it this deeply, and it's really a cool story because it has to do with more than one person seeing these guys. This is back in 1972, and it's Eastern Airlines TriStar Jetliner Flight 401. It crashed into a Florida swamp. Uh, The pilot Bob Loft and flight engineer Don Repo were two of the 101 people who perished in the crash. And at this point in time, and this is a little surprising, uh, and they don't do this anymore, I hope, but parts of that plane that crashed were fitted onto other other jetliners that were
0: salvaged. I've heard of this story, and it's, that part creeps me out. Every time I fly, I think about that, actually.
4: It is so creepy to think about that. I'm, hopefully they don't do that anymore, but, you know, they're trying to save that money, so they're taking these salvaged parts. Well, these guys on 20, or actually more than 20 different occasions were were seen by crew members and supposedly it's just on the planes that were these salvaged parts were put on so here's a couple of stories about these guys and i find these uh really compelling because it's more than one person seeing these many come from people in highly responsible positions uh, for this airline pilots flight officers even a vice president of eastern airlines itself who allegedly spoke with the captain that he assumed was in charge of the flight he was on, before recognizing him as the late Loft. It says other sightings are convincing because they have multiple witnesses. A flight's captain and two flight attendants claim to have seen and spoken to Loft before takeoff and watched him vanish. An experience that left them so shaken they canceled the flight. In the last yeah, one, I imagine. yeah, that that one. See, that one got me. If these guys are that adamant that no this is what happened we're going to cancel this flight that says something this one is one female passenger made a concerned inquiry to a flight attendant regarding the quiet unresponsive man in eastern airlines uniform sitting in the seat next to her he subsequently disappeared in full view of both of them and several other passengers leaving the woman hysterical When later shown a sheet of photos depicting Eastern flight engineers, she identified Repo as the officer she had seen. So I just, (laughs) I thought that was cool, and I don't think that in every case it's a vanishing ghost or a vanishing specter, but in the case of... Of Joshua, there I'm sure he's he's really wondering what in the world happened that day to him, and not that not that any of us have the answers, even in our own stories. But at least he's not the only one that's seen something that you'd swear was a real person, and it can even interact with you, and then all of a sudden
0: it's just gone. Sure, yeah. If, if it happened to somebody else, it could easily, uh, you know, verify his story, at least to him. I, I don't know to science, but to him, at right?
4: Least. Yeah, science is a whole nother whole other can of worms there. We can't (laughs) duplicate this stuff in a lab, but but to us, we know what we've seen. In
0: all honesty, this isn't a science-based show. This is an entertainment show, so, uh, you know. Yes. Uh, So, Shannon, is there anything else that you'd like to bring up about the, the call that we just listened to, or...?
4: No, I just want to say, uh, as far as your show, I love the format. I love the fact that it takes people, you kind of got to get the bravery up to make that phone call. But you've been getting a lot of really fantastic callers. And I want to encourage everybody to keep doing that and uh, and keep the show rolling forward. I, I say the same thing on mine, is that every time somebody comes forward, there might be just a tiny nugget in there that sparks somebody else to go, oh my gosh, you know, I had a I had something kind of similar happen like that with me or maybe it just verifies that okay maybe it's time to to call derek and leave that leave that voicemail there
0: and that sort of thing happens all the time there will be a call and and a week later i get five more you know oh i saw the same thing or i saw something very similar so definitely uh important to share your stories and, and get that information out there and speaking of getting information out there why don't you tell everybody where they can find your show
7: shannon
4: well thank you sir yeah, so I'm on uh, the usual podcatchers, same as uh, Derek's is on iTunes, Stitcher, most of the other podcatchers, some of mine I don't even, I didn't even know existed. Uh, IntoTheFrayRadio.com is the website, and of course you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and me, myself, on all of those, plus uh, my personal Instagram page.
0: I want to thank you so much, Shannon, for taking the time to come on and talk spooky stuff with me. I, this is something that I've never done before, and it's... Uh, you know, it turned out to be a lot of fun to, you know, shoot the breeze with Yeah, everybody.
4: thanks so much, Derek. It's good to talk to you again.
0: Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Our next guest is one half of the hilarious team that brings us blurry photos. It's my pleasure to welcome David Flora to the show. Hello, David. Thank you for being a part of this experimental episode.
8: Hey, Derek. Uh, thank you
0: so much for having me on. How are you doing? I'm doing great. swelteringly hot here in California, but great otherwise.
8: Yeah. <laughs> it's that uh, that heat wave that's rolling through. Luckily we've had thunderstorms up here all day so I've been staying somewhat cooler.
0: I'm terrified but. of thunderstorms and I'll tell you why. Every time we get one there's a forest fire. <laughs> oh, and I, my I gosh, live yeah. on the top of a mountain so you know if we get into a fire, then we have some problems. That is true. You're going to have to invest in some helicopter lessons, like a zip line or something like that, or a it, zip line. Get yeah. me off of this thing. Just a grappling hook. Get out of there. <laughs> well, that's a long grappling hook. I think I'm about a mile up. So, <laughs> so I'm asking everybody that I'm having on this very special episode: What got you into the paranormal? Was there a particular event, or uh, was it just something you kind of gravitated toward?
8: Always uh, have gravitated towards it. I used to read, uh, mythology books in elementary school, and middle school, uh, in on into, uh, uh, the rest of schooling and life. Um, and I've always been interested in the myths, the stories, the monsters that go along with it. And, um, it, it's just sort of, once, once I got into, uh, the workforce and I got a job where I could listen to podcasts, um... I, I could watch some shows and stuff. I started uh, um, just listening to, I think, Mysterious Universe was one of the early ones. And I just found it fascinating, you know, the, the experiences that people have had, uh, how you could get a real response out of people, be it um, terrified or just interested, you know, just fascinated by uh, what all that came with the... the supernatural paranormal fortiana uh and yeah so i I would say that my love of this type of stuff started in mythology and monsters in particular and has just branched out you know as as the circles that we run in tend to do um and so that's uh that's why i wanted to talk about it and and um my friend and partner dave uh, on the podcast we um we take our kind of uh, fascination of this this topic and uh, try to make each other laugh with it while we do a lot of research and find out uh, you know what's behind all this stuff, whether it's real or or whether you know there's uh, there are explanations for everything basically
0: It's funny you mentioned the uh, inspiration. Because you guys are actually my inspiration I've, I listened to you for for a long time, and I thought, you know these guys can do it, I can do it um, <laughs> and i've and never I been, can do it better <laughs> <laughs> I've never been so wrong in my entire life, but um, <laughs> you guys a show it's hilarious it's informative more importantly, well, and as I said, it's a huge inspiration to me and it's it's one of the two or three shows that that really launched me into this world uh, you know, it's something I've been interested in my entire life, but I never thought I'd be here discussing it with anyone. So <laughs> no, thank it's you great. for that.
8: And sure, and, and you have a uh, a great setup there. I, I love what you do. I feel like it's uh, pretty unique. You know, you hear a lot of... There are a lot of podcasts like what Dave and I do where it's just a couple guys going back and forth about what we think and, and what there is. But uh, I love that, that you actually have experiences. You, you go to people who have these... Um, these things happen to them, and kind of focus on that. So I I think you've got a good thing going, and congratulations.
0: I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Let me ask you this question before we get started, though. What is your favorite monster? Is there one in particular that has your your heart in its palm? Uh,
8: I... Boy, I I hate picking favorites out of of anything. I can't even pick a favorite food anymore. (laughs) Um, I... It's not considered a a monster per se. I would I would think, but of the things that we have researched and talked about on our podcast, um, the one figure that I always love hearing about and and was just a blast to learn about was Springheeled Jack, mm-hmm. and uh, that was the the Victorian era um, figure of uh, London shadowy um, guy with with some kind of like bodysuit and iron claws, breathing blue flame, jumping out at women and like tearing at their bodices and then bounding off into the night, uh, going up and slapping cops and military men. And then, you know, just taking off, jumping over walls and, uh, nobody ever caught him. Nobody, nobody ever knew what he was or who he was. You know, there are, uh, thoughts about what it could have been or who it could have been. But, um, yeah, it was,
0: it, it's a true unsolved mystery <laughs> and and uh, a true inspiration to a lot of us <laughs> Oh yeah <laughs> I, I, I would like to run around and slap some people And do some jumping myself Right <laughs> it's, That is a very fun story And unfortunately I don't get to cover things like that on this show Because it's mostly you know listeners submitting Living people <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't Can, have people from the Victoria 1800s Lynch. calling yeah. <laughs> in so. Not yet anyway I, I can't wait for that day <laughs> Alright well what do you say we uh, we get into this call I love it Perfect Well, the following story was submitted by Beth in Indiana.
6: Hey, Derek. My name is Beth, and this is my story. I was a senior in high school around 2003-2004, and I was just starting my obsession with the supernatural. Thanks to all the reality TV shows that were coming out about ghost hunting and cryptozoology, I decided to start my own little ghost hunting team with my younger sister. Cryptozoology is my true passion, but because of the fact that there are not many cryptids in northeast Indiana, besides Oscar, the beast of Busco, a giant turtle said to live in Blue Lake, I decided to go the paranormal route. Upon interviewing people about haunted locations around our little town, we came across a spooky story that our stepdad told us. Here's the story. A small cemetery named Salem's Lot in Noble County, Indiana was said to be the home of an old man many years ago. He was the caretaker of the cemetery and lived in a wooden shack on the property. The cemetery was located at a crossroads on some old country roads nestled in the woods. This poor man was constantly tormented by teenagers who would come on the property and chuck rocks through his window and bang on his home during all hours of the day and night. It was horrible the old man decided to get a dog, a big dog, to help protect the cemetery and scare off any intruders that meant to cause harm. So he found himself a Mastiff puppy. The bond was strong between these two, and it didn't take long for the Mastiff to grow to a huge, intimidating size and start chasing off all the annoying teenagers. But one night, the old man was fixing flowers on the headstones after the storm when a group of teenagers pulled up to the cemetery. They had baseball bats and a net, and the Mastiff, who never left the old man's side, greeted them at the gravel drive, barking and growling. The old man started running for his cabin, and when he looked back to call the Mastiff to follow him, he saw that the teenagers had netted her and were dragging her out into the woods. The old man then started running, but was knocked unconscious by a rock that was thrown at him. It was said that the old man was beaten, put in his shack, and burned alive. As for the Mastiff, no one ever saw her again. It was said that the teenager secured the net and tied the Mastiff to a tree in the middle of the woods, leaving her to starve to death. The townsfolk said to have placed a tombstone in the cemetery in remembrance of the old man. However, since no one knew anything about him, the tombstone had no name and only the date that the burnt shack was found. My stepdad told me about an experience that he had at Salem's Lot when he was in high school. A couple new kids moved to town and my stepdad and some of his friends thought it would be really funny to tell them the story and then take them to the cemetery to scare them. So one evening at dusk, my stepdad and his friends drove out to Salem's Lot. Three of the friends jumped out of the truck to go hide in the cemetery and the plan was to pick up the new kids and tell them the story, and then take them to the cemetery where the other three friends would be waiting to jump out and scare them. Everything was going as planned, and the truck was heading down the country road to Salem's Lot. The new kids were in the back, kind of suspicious, along with another of my stepdad's friends. A friend of his was also driving as my stepdad sat in the passenger seat, talking to the kids through the back window of the truck. It was now completely dark as they approached the cemetery and the truck just started to slow down to make the turn into the gravel drive when the three friends they had left there earlier came running out of the cemetery towards the truck, waving their hands for the truck to turn around. They yelled, no, turn around, go back. Everyone in the truck started laughing, thinking the prank was premature. What are you doing? Go! They continued to yell. When they got close and jumped into the bed of the truck, the driver and my stepdad saw how sheet white their faces were. Get going, my stepdad yelled at the driver, and he made a fast U-turn, almost crashing the truck into a ditch. Floor it! It's right behind us! Someone yelled from the bed. This is where my stepdad stuck his head out the window to see what was happening, and he was horrified to see a very abnormally large gray mastiff chasing the truck. Bastard! He said to the driver, going about 60 miles per hour, the dog kept up with the truck. It was a pretty amazing feat for a Mastiff. The dog chased the truck three miles without hesitation to the state road before it disappeared. My stepdad said the creepy part of all of it was the fact that the eyes of the Mastiff glowed red while it was chasing them, and it didn't appear to have legs, just a blur of gray. It was almost like it was floating. None of them ever returned to Salem's lot. So this was it. Call me crazy, but I was excited to go to Salem's Lot. So one evening, my sister, along with a couple of her friends, got our cameras, voice recorders, and thermometers, and headed to the location my stepdad gave us. We went at dusk so we could still see and get our bearings of our surroundings. We pulled off the state road onto the country road towards the crossroads where Salem's Lot was said to be. Sure enough, a few miles down, there it was on the left, nestled along a tree line. And now at had a church built next to it. There was only a one-lane gravel drive that led in, and it was also the way out. I pulled in and parked. It was a quiet and uneventful night. We didn't find any remnants of the burned shack, but found a small clearing next to the woods where one could have stood. We did find the strange unmarked tombstone, however. We took a lot of pictures and a lot of voice recordings. After reviewing our recordings and pictures we didn't really find anything strange except one picture. I took multiple shots down the gravel path towards the back of the cemetery and all came up with nothing unusual except one. You could see the trees on the left of the gravel path, the grass that was growing over the path, and the tombstones all around, but in this one picture it looked as if two gray foggy figures stood on the path, one much shorter than the other. We were the only ones in the cemetery that night, and there wasn't any wind for dust to be stirred up, so I couldn't explain it. The picture encouraged me to make a social media page for our ghost hunting group, but sadly when I graduated I got too busy to continue ghost hunting and the social media page was inactive for so long that it must have been deleted, along with the picture. I searched everywhere for it so I could show you, but no luck. In regards to the original story, I couldn't find any evidence other than the strange tombstone at Salem's Lot, and I couldn't find any history on the location. As for my stepdad's story, the dog could have been just that, an angry dog. The red eyes could have been from the taillights of the truck, and how the dog appeared to be floating could have just been a trick of the eye since it was dark and the only light around was from the truck. The only strange thing about the story was how fast the truck was supposedly going and that the dog was able to keep up. Regardless, it would have scared the out of me too. I wish I could tell you the date on the tombstone in which the supposed shack was found burnt or exactly where Salem's Lot is, but I honestly don't remember. I probably could get there again if I tried hard enough to find it. Thank you, Derek, so much for your podcast. It truly feeds my everyday need for cryptozoology, and you're wonderful. Keep it up.
0: Thank you, Beth, for submitting your story. There's a lot to unpack here. You have the original legend of the the man and the dog. Mm-hmm. You have the stepfather's story of yeah. what happened to him, and then you have Beth's story. That's three for one, brother. It is three for one. It's quite the call. <laughs> Do you want to start, David? What are your initial thoughts on this? Well, I, I like the story. I mean,
8: obviously, you've got the local folklore to base it off of. Then you've got... Um, a step parents account you know and so it's like a multi-generational thing too it keeps these these stories alive in that sense which is very cool yeah it's it's got uh it's got a lot of stuff to it so i think first of all i looked for cemeteries in in noble county just did a the the old google maps jaunt (laughs) around northeast indiana there are actually two cemeteries uh attached to the name salem around that area. Now, either I missed it or I didn't get the name of the quote-unquote town that this is supposedly taking place in. Uh, I'm assuming it might be Albion because that's, I think, the the seat of the, uh, the county there. But anyways, within like 20 minutes of Albion, there are two Salem cemeteries, uh, which I would, you know, I could easily see being called, either one of them being called Salem's Lot, Uh, One of them's on State Road, uh, State Route 5, uh, around 1100 north, um, and the other is right off of State Route 5 and 320 south. The description that she gave, with it being nestled around the the trees and kind of in the woods, a little little bit off the path there, is uh, closer to the latter location, the southern location.
0: That's the same thing that I found, too. I found that same cemetery, and I thought the same thing cool okay good then yeah. it makes me feel better because it's been a long time <laughs> it doesn't being like... make it right by any means but that's... <laughs> right?
8: this all could be just made up who knows exactly <laughs> but yeah I, I found right next to that one there was like a triangle crossroads uh as opposed to like a true like you know four-way crossroads at the uh, the northern one but uh crossroads you know they they figure heavily in folklore anyway so you you've got the in the in the legend let's say the the legend account you you've got the old classic kind of like almost Freddy Krueger esque story of it's borderline this, yeah yeah it's, this it's, poor guy who's just minding his own kind of thing trying to you know do his do his thing and then some some jackass teens come around and I guess they didn't like that they couldn't harass him anymore because he got a dog to protect himself from them. <laughs> And so they go to this gruesome turn in the story, you know, where where they end up burning him alive in his in his cabin and, and killing the dog. And I'm a dog person, and that's that's always a, a thumbs down in my book.
0: <laughs> there should have been a disclaimer at the beginning of that story. I believe excessive animal violence. Oh yeah, we know it's funny bringing up the original legend. I've I found a lot of old cemeteries will have a single stone with the year the cemetery was incorporated or or opened or, or whatever the. The word there is. And I feel like in spooky places like that, if there's any anomaly whatsoever, there's a story created around that anomaly rather than the other way around. True. A perfect example, I grew up in Ohio, and there's a a location called uh, Otterbein Cemetery. There's a tombstone with a horseshoe print on it, and it's like rust colored, and it's clear as day, looks like a horseshoe. And the story is that a man and a wife uh, were having a kid, and the, the wife died in childbirth. He waited a couple of years got remarried and on the wedding day it was a cold winter's day as it always is in Ohio uh they visited the wife yeah <laughs> even in July even, even now, in July in the middle of well July is like the summer <laughs> and then the rest is winter but so they went yeah. back to the cemetery with the new wife to pay the respects to visit and as they were leaving the cemetery the horse I don't know if it threw a shoe or somehow kicked the new wife to death and ever since that day that uh tombstone has donned the rust colored horseshoe print and that's like the perfect example oh, of, wow. of this kind of phenomenon where you find something strange in a place like a, well, a cemetery is a perfect example and you kind of build a story around it like you know there's a date it could be that there was an old yeah. man that had a cabin and, and he you know had these horrific things happen to him and that's why they're commemorating the guy with this date uh, I think it's kind of the cart before the horse yeah. no pun intended uh with a lot of these.
8: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um and that's you know, in all of mythology that's kind of yeah that's kinda of how it works too. You you come up with the story to explain something you you know that you don't understand or don't know about. So yeah, it could be that people saw a, a stone there uh that commemorated something and so maybe there was a burned down cabin, you know, uh in on the lands there and, you know, after a few tellings of it or, you know, some hearsay there you go. There's there's that legend and cemeteries have always been creepy places for a lot of people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Some people find solace in them. Some people think that uh, it's it's a place to go and get your heebies jeebie'd. <laughs> so um uh, I, I I like though that uh, in the stepfather story he also brings up that it was the dog that chased them. That was the encounter that he had. It was a supernatural dog. Kind of said it was floating, the red eyes, and then kept pace at sixty miles an hour for three miles, which is um, a feat <laughs> to uh. say the least. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a big mastiff. Yeah. So uh, so I, I like that. The, it, what I also like, maybe jumping ahead a little, is that Beth then tries to kind of explain that in a way. It, it gives her credibility, I think, in my book, saying, you know, maybe it was a real dog. Maybe the eyes were, were catching a reflection of the truck's taillights.
0: Exactly, yeah.
8: You know, and um, so I, I appreciate that leap. But obviously, taking a bunch of pictures and stuff, but then not not having them now to reference or, or to look at, you can't really speculate very well on a picture that you've just been told about, you know. Yeah. Obviously we can't say yay or nay on whether these are ghostly figures that she caught in the photograph or dust, even though it wasn't a, a windy night, you know, and uh, things like that. So it's it's hard to speculate on the more
0: modern stuff, which is kind of a, a twist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you almost have to throw out the picture completely, you know, without any way to, to look at it. It's it's kind of pointless for us to speculate what could or could not have been there. You're completely right there.
8: Right, right. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a cool story nonetheless, and I I like that the old legend has... The, the crossroads in it, like I said. I've, I've got a little folklore uh, on crossroads if you want to hear some of it. Of course. So, like, cro- crossroads come up in folklore across the world. It's not, not even a localized in America or the West. It appears in Eastern folklore. And the mythologies all kind of have their different takes on it. But some of the beliefs that come out of what crossroads can do or stand for is the belief that they confound spirits, which thus impedes their comings and goings. You know, if, if you've got a crossroads next to a cemetery, it's good. The spirits won't get out and pester the living. They, they'll they be, I guess they won't know where, which way to go. Uh, but, you know, in a lot of cultures, you, you'd see hanging trees or gallows or uh, gibbets. <laughs> gibbets, gibbets, gibbets. At at a crossroads, and that's kind of tied into that folklore as well. Uh, There's also a belief in some cultures that you can meet the devil there at midnight. And, you know, if you are so inclined, you can sell him a soul. And I hope you get something very shiny for that. (laughs) Um, There's also the belief you can learn a skill there through certain rituals Uh, that you can learn of near future events. You know, there's all kinds of stuff associated depending on what culture you're looking at. But um, in in essence, it's a sort of no man's land and therefore it's a perfect place for activities not of this quote-unquote realm, you know. One superstition with them is that arguing at a crossroads is unlucky. So don't get in a fight there. Don't get in an argument. (laughs) Trolls gather at crossroads in Scandinavian lore while in the British Isles it was witches and fey folk and um i i like this is this is the kind of the last thing i have them but uh, the crossroads were very much a part of folk cures too so for instance if you have a wart i uh, i got a few ways for you to get rid of it during a full moon rub a wart with your mother's dish rag and the wart would disappear if the dish rag is buried at midnight in the center of a crossroad. So, as long as you can uh, get away from your your nagging mother being like, where's my dishrag?
0: Well, if you'll excuse me for a few minutes, I have a dish rag I have to go find <laughs> real quick. That's right. You want, Do you
8: want warts, Mom? Um... A uh, c- couple more real quick. Smear a few drops of blood from your wart on a piece of paper. Then go to a crossroad and throw the paper over your left shoulder because whoever picks up the, the blood will take your wart. Who would do that? Well, that, that files under the category of dick move <laughs> in my book. <laughs> Come on, man. Uh, and then my personal favorite. Carry a dead cat at night while passing through a cemetery to a crossroad where you should rub your warts with the dead cat and they will be gone by morning.
0: Uh, this is the animal abuse episode, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the cat's already dead in this one, so <laughs> oh, well, it's, at it, least that's like I'm warts. a cat guy, so that one offends me. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it's funny that the crossroads almost seem like a gateway to another place. I don't want to say dimension. I don't want to say anything like that. Right. But it's like, you know, if, if there was a thinner veil, that's where it would be.
8: Right. That it Actually, they were in, in Greek mythology. That was kind of their thing there, their role. It was kind of a, a portal to the underworld, to Hades. Huh. Or, or you could find one there. Interesting. Interesting.
0: So, from Indiana to Greece, there's our connection. Yeah. <laughs> The only connection, probably, from Indiana degrees. But yeah, cool story though. Well, you know, in my search for this infamous cemetery, I did find a very interesting story about a dog, uh, Stiffy, the cemetery dog. <laughs> of uh, I can't. How do you pronounce that town? Terra Hot? Is that how you pronounce Terahot. it? Terra Hot. Okay. Terra Yeah. Terra Haute, Okay. Yeah, yeah. If you have a few minutes here, David, I'd love to play this video that I yeah. found on YouTube. That's just cracks me up. Absolutely. The following video comes to us via YouTube user The Weekly Special WTIU. Check this out.
9: At the Vigo County Historical Society in Terre Haute, downstairs in the basement lives a true legend. It's Stiffy Green.
7: He's one of our most popular uh, exhibits, and uh, I always tell people that he doesn't eat much and I don't have to walk him, so he's very easy to take care of.
9: The legend of Stiffy Green started after the death of his beloved owner.
7: And the story goes that Stiffy Green was the very favorite uh, pet dog of Mr. Heinle, and he went with Mr. Heinle everywhere. Well, unfortunately, when Mr. Heinel died, uh, they put him to rest in Highland Lawn Cemetery at the Heinel Mausoleum. And uh, the story is that Stiffy kept running away from home and going out to the mausoleum because he was lonely for his master. They'd get him, bring him back home. One day when they went to uh, retrieve him, he had died on the steps of the mausoleum. And so they thought, Perhaps it would be nice for him to be with his master in death as he had been in life. So they had Stiffy stuffed and the green glass eyes were inserted uh, for his eyes. He was at an attraction at the, at the cemetery for many years. People would sneak out there in the dark and take a flashlight and shine it in the mausoleum and of course those green glass eyes would glow and boy they'd run because they were scared.
9: Generations of Terre Haute residents passed down the legend and made visits to Highland Lawn for a fright, until a fateful night.
7: Unfortunately, uh, someone did not respect other people's property, and at one point the mausoleum and the dog were damaged uh, with a shotgun blast through the doors.
9: Stiffy then came to live at the Vigo County Historical Society in the mid-80s. A local community group built a replica of the Heinol Mausoleum and Stiffy stands guard. For some visitors it's a matter of confusion when they see Stiffy up close and they ask whether he really is a stuffed dog.
7: Legends are kind of a combination of the truth and things that people have kind of added through the years. So you never know what's true and what's not true about a legend. We'll have to let you decide for yourself.
9: And even though his green eyes sparkle eerily here at the museum, that legend still lives on in Terre Haute.
7: Because if you go out to Highland Lawn on a dark, cloudy night, you may hear a little dog barking and growling on the porch of the Heinel Mausoleum.
0: So in the video, it's pretty clear that the taxidermied, I'm using quotations here, dog, doesn't really look like a taxidermy dog to me it looks like some sort of rubber dog or something like that did did you I, I even thought it was concrete to be honest when i was first looking at it yeah it could be concrete yeah i have to go back and look uh, for those of you that are wondering what we're talking about go to the show notes uh monsters among us uh click show notes and you'll see the video that we're discussing i highly suggest you check it out it's you know if anything hilarious <laughs> it's true So anyway, David, uh, I want to thank you so much for being part of this strange, unusual episode that I don't normally do, but I'm quite frankly enjoying it. So thank you for coming on and taking the time to do so.
8: Absolutely, Derek. It's been a a blast. And um, yeah, man, I I have a feeling you might do a few more of these. (laughs) It's pretty fun to... Uh, To get uh, the takes on it and and to listen to all these stories and stuff, I think it's going to be pretty cool, man.
0: Yeah, yeah. There'll be few and far between, but I'll probably do it again. (laughs) It is an undertaking. (laughs) It's a lot of work compared to what I normally do, but, uh, you know, (laughs) that's how you learn and expand. Exactly. Now I want to encourage everyone to go over to blurryphotos.org and check out this awesome show that David and Dave have put together. You can also find their show on iTunes and Stitcher, as well as social media accounts, including Facebook uh, and Twitter. So go ahead and check out David's show. And, uh, you know, thank you again, David, for being on. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, man. And that's going to do it for this episode of Monsters Among Us. But before I go, I want to take a quick minute to thank you. With every episode I produce, I feel more and more humbled and frankly amazed that so many of you tune in religiously. I find it even more unbelievable that so many of you take the time to share your intimate stories with us week in and week out. So from the bottom of my cold black heart, thank you all so very much. And while I'm taking the time to offer thanks... I'd also like to thank the following people for their generous donations in the show's time of need Sam B., Winston G., Amanda H., Nancy C., Emily B., Sarah H.W., and Kathleen C. You and all the others that have donated, left reviews, shared your stories, and told your friends are heroes in my book. So thank you once again. Per usual, I'll be taking the next two weeks off to revamp, recharge, and get ready to attack Season 4 with a vengeance. But, by all means, please, don't hesitate to continue sharing your stories, leaving reviews, making donations, and telling your friends about this little podcast that we've all created. To share your story, head on over to the website at MonstersAmongUsPodcast.com and click on the Report Your Sightings tab. There you will find several submission options, along with the telephone number to our 24-hour hotline, which coincidentally is one 888 608 night now keep in mind there is a five minute limit per call so if you need more time simply call back and pick up where you left off to leave a review open your itunes podcast app search for monsters among us click the shows icon click the reviews tab then click the button that says write a review i only need nine more reviews to break the 100 mark and that would be a wonderful thing to see before season four launches And lastly, if you think two weeks without Monsters Among Us is too long, you're in luck. It just so happens that I will be guest hosting on Blurry Photo's Bullstone in the coming week, in addition to guest hosting with Shannon LeGrow on Into the Fray Radio. You can find links to both of those shows in the show notes for this episode. I highly suggest you take a few minutes to check out those wonderful programs. I want to thank the talented Mr. Warren Pond Abbott for his vocal contributions to this episode and so many more. Without him, the show would be a lot more boring. I'd also like to take a quick moment to thank my beautiful fiancee, Sarah. Without her help and guidance, the show wouldn't be where it is today. Music from tonight's episode was provided by Mayu and Nature World 1986. Thank you all for listening, and until next season.